Gracious Lord, we are gathered here today to return to 2 Samuel. We ask your blessings on this time together. We do remember um, Diana Whitley today who is having surgery, um, a friend of, of ours and a longtime part of my Sunday class. And there are, indeed, we lift up all of those on our hearts who are in need of your healing, comfort, um, and assurance. And just take, continue to be with us as we go through these stories of David as we, and help us to understand that this is the Word of God, but it's also our own spiritual journal as your people. Um, all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let me just check. Okay, the podcast audio is working. So let's see. All right. So here's where we are. We have finished four chapters of Second Samuel, which seems pretty. It didn't take us very long because the story is rather large and can be handled fairly quickly. There is. When Saul dies, the family of Israelites, which is the family of Abraham, we're all squared about that, right? These are all the family of Abraham. Um, they all have, figuratively at least, the blood of Abraham flowing in their veins. So when Saul dies in battle at Mount Gibeon, along with his son Jonathan and another son or two, the Israelites are on the verge then of civil war because Saul has a son named Ishbosheth, um, and he and Abner begin to move the ten northern tribes further apart from the tribe of Judah, who chooses David as their tribal chieftain, king, we'll call him. That doesn't get very far, really, because of the fact that one of David's commanders, Joab, decided that he would follow Abner's pleas and put an end to the immediate fighting. And then Abner is killed by Joab. Do you remember that? That Joab, in a very duplicitous manner, um, killed Abner. And that's kind of a big moment. And remember David said, I, you know, went to the Lord and said, I didn't do this. The people can see that I did not do this. Um, and I think it, it goes along with David's reluctance to directly do something to harm Saul. So, um, and he won't harm Ishbosheth. And but a couple of the guys, this is in chapter four, take it upon themselves to murder Ishbosheth and bring his head to David. And what they get in the form of payment, which is the opposite, I think, of what they thought they would get, their lives were forfeit. And so now what's going to happen is the death of Ishbosheth is going to mean that David is going to become the king of the United Israel. So the first king of the United Israel was Saul. There's this little period when it, gosh, you know, is it going to be all out civil war? No. And then David is going to become the king of the United Israel, which means the king of these 12 tribes. And David will take the 12 tribes in this kingdom forward, um, certainly in terms of worldly power and wealth. Um, 
And those are the stories that we're going to read. So where we are now in chapter 5 is that David is um, now going to be made king of the tribe, of all of Israel. Okay? So, thoughts, questions about any of that or about anything else? Yes, sir. Prior, prior to Saul's death, yes. did, did you get a feeling that the tribes of Israel really wanted to be united? Or, to me, the, Saul was the reason for the split. And there just, to me, just had to be some sort of sigh of relief when Saul finally goes. The question is, did the tribes of Israel want to be ruled by someone other than Saul and probably David. And my sense, when you read through the narratives and you read on into where we are today, the answer to that seems to be yes. Which isn't really surprising because Saul's madness would have been evident to many people as he got worse and worse and worse and worse. And in the end, who really wants to be led by someone who has these bouts of madness, right? Um, and, but there are a lot of jealousies among people. There would be jealousies among the tribal chieftains. You know, you always have to remember that David will be a, a united king, his son Solomon will be, and then it will all fall apart. And it will all fall apart in civil war, in part because of personal ambitions. See, personal ambitions. <coughs> but yes, I, I think we're going to see that the tribes at least pay lip service to having wanted David and pleased now that it's David. Okay? So let's just start in chapter 5, verse 1. I do think it's that's where we stopped last time. Am I right? Oh, gosh, I always love that when I'm right about that. Okay, so I'm going to leave the little map up here just to, because this is kind of the state of things, and now it's going to begin to change a bit. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. That is this important little central town in the hills in central Israel. It's sort of centered um, a little bit west of, Jerusalem, though Jerusalem is not, is not Israelite, it's still Jebusite. And they said to him, we are your own flesh and blood. That is a sentence that worth underlining. All these stories that will unfold in the book of Samuel and onward all the way through the book of Kings, these are all stories of people who share an ethnic heritage. They are flesh and blood. They are all cousins. Like all the people at Denmark. They're all cousins. I saw, I saw, this I saw, it was a poll out ten years ago. Happiest country on earth. The winner was Denmark. They interviewed a Dane and he, they said, you know, you've got all this stuff and you give everybody X and Y and Z. Well, how do you make all that work? He said, well, we're all cousins. Right? We're one family. We're all cousins. We're, we're, we're the tribe of the Danes. So, okay, you know, that's very different than America, right? There is not a common ethnic heritage that all Americans share. But you go to countries like Denmark and Norway and Sweden, um, there is, and anyway, okay. 
So they said, we are your flesh and blood, David. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. True statement, right? Right, remember the song people would sing? Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his tens of thousands. He was, he was unbeatable, he and his men, and his leading of the Israelites. Because, why? Because God was with him. You were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. Now you might ask, well, how do they know this? Because it all happened at Samuel's house long, long time ago. Not, uh, not Samuel's house, Jesse's house when Samuel was there. My experience in life is that word and whisper go out. The brothers were there. Neighbors might have come over to see what the heck was going on. So it's not crazy to me that the stories of it being ever clear that David is God's choice would become ever clearer to more people. Well, in any event, verse 3, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them. These are the leaders of the other tribes. That's who we're talking about. Right? He made a covenant with them at Hebron before Yahweh, and they anointed David king over Israel. So all the tribes come together. They all agree that David is going to be their king. The civil war is averted. David was 30 years old when he became king. So all those chapters we read with all those stories of David from the time he was, you know, however old he was when Samuel came to the house in 1 Samuel 16 until now, years have passed. He is now 30. This is a time when 30 is fully grown. You know, it's so, okay, so this is my, okay, this is my old man moment. I get... I, I get extremely annoyed when I hear a 28-year-old person today say, oh my gosh, I've got, to, I've got to go adulting today. And I'm thinking to myself, what are you talking about? You're 28, of course, every day is an adulting day for you, right? No, not in their minds. When they have to do stuff they don't want to do, that's adulting. <laughs> gosh. Anyway, yeah. It happens. If you haven't heard it, you haven't hung around with enough young people. <coughs> or the right ones. Now, so David was 30 years old when he became king. And he reigned 40 years. 40 years. That's a long time. That spans generations. Uh, 40 in the Bible. It isn't really meant to be. It can be an exact number. But they're not as uptight about that stuff as we are. We are so uptight. I have on my wrist a watch, which can't, it, it's too imprecise if I just have to wind it up every day. Instead, it's gotta, it's gotta get the time from some atomic clock somewhere to satisfy my need for perfection to know exactly. Here's some oh, stop it. That was my watch talking to me, okay? 
But for them, no. So 40 years, 40 becomes this number. That means not a little time, not the most time you could think of, but a long time. Reigns for 40 days and nights. Jesus is tempted for 40. It becomes this sort of binding number across, across Scripture. So David is going to be king for a long time. Now, it's, we're beginning to get to the point in history where you can begin to put tentative dates with things. Okay? <coughs> and a tentative date, tentative date, for David's accession to the kingship of all Israel is 1010 B.C. Okay? So, if we think roughly of Abraham and Jesus and how far apart they are, roughly, David is about halfway through. Because Abraham's getting close to 2,000 years B.C. Obviously, Jesus is right the anchor of bc ad and david is about halfway um so there's still a lot a lot to come there's a lot more history of israel ahead than in the years since they left egypt and began settling in the promised land and taking the cities that they took so he's 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years, which makes up the 40. Judah, just you, you, it sort of illustrates it here a bit. Judah is far and away the largest of the 12 tribes. It, was, it is so large that it will be able to sustain a kingdom by itself. When the civil war eventually comes, the ten northern tribes will leave the tribe of Judah behind and they will form the northern kingdom called Israel and the tribe of Judah along with Benjamin which is in itsy bitsy teeny weeny will constitute the southern kingdom which will take Judah's name. It will be Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Judah is big, numerous, powerful but David is going to make it even more central in the life and religion and mindset of the Israelites. So, let's see that story. Thoughts, questions? It's part of my anti-coughing anti campaign. I'm doing much better. Uh, verse six of chapter five. The king, David, right? And his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. Well, okay. So here is the Jebusite city of Jerusalem. Kind of an oblong-shaped thing. Um, it, is, it has walls. It has water, sort of. It has a mountain, a hill. We call it a mountain. You know, a hill there. Um, Mount Zion. <clears throat> Even in Jesus' days, you could see 
the remaining outline of what would become to be known as the city of David, because he's going to obviously conquer this city. This is the model in Jerusalem, okay, of Jerusalem in model today in Jerusalem of Jerusalem in Jesus' day. So this is the Temple Mount, huge, 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 coming off the south. So these are the southern, southern steps that some of you have sat upon if you've been to Israel on the last few trips. And this is the city of David. It's, you know, it's sometimes um, people refer to it as being shaped by a, king a keyhole. So generally in this area, is what was the first part of the city that became the Jerusalem that you picture. Okay, spread out. There's nothing else there. All there is is this area here roughly with walls around it. It's controlled and by the Jebusites. Here's a close-up of it. Okay? Scott, yes? That's the model. Not big, not big. If you go there today, there's, there's like a little road that you drive down one side and goes up the other. So it's not, it's not big. <coughs> this is no massive, I mean the... Okay, those are in Jesus' day. Those aren't there in David's day. In David's day, these are, they, I mean, this is a thousand years before Jesus. So what are the buildings like? They're kind of, if we saw them, we'd probably call them kind of ramshackle, you know? Yep, yep, this, this is all, this is Jesus' day. So you have to see the outline, but the city, the town itself, would not, not be impressive. How about that? Now, but what makes it simply not a little village like Nazareth and makes it a city? Is it's not the size, it is the fact that it has walls. It's the walls that differentiate it. And the walls are going to make the people, the Jebusites, feel overconfident. So look back at, at verse 6 in chapter 5. Here's what the Jebusites said to David. You will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. Generally speaking, you know, if somebody shows up at your gate with visions of conquering your city, there's really no reason to provoke them further. <laughs> right? It's kind of like in pro football. When somebody puts something, you know, when a team says something bad about the other team and it ends up on the bill blackboard, bulletin board, and it gets the team that was insulted all fired up. Well, so here they say, okay, David, even the blind and the lame can ward you off. And they thought, ah, David can't get in here. Why do they say that? Because they have walls. If you have walls, you can only be conquered by siege by and large okay that's what has to happen that's what happened well let's slow down Scott that's what's gonna happen 400 years hence I like the word hence 400 years hence 
when the Babylonians lay siege around Jerusalem. And, and then finally, you know, conquered the city in 586, the winter of 587, 586 B.C. So here they say, you know, they're thinking, we got walls, man. You're wasting your time. There was no way to breach the walls. They don't have artillery. They don't have, have you ever seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Maybe not. I don't know. The best they could do would might be coming up throwing a cow over the wall, which happens in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Just as, I don't know. Anyway, so on that day, after being insulted, David said, well, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those, quote, lame and blind who are David's enemies. That's the secret. Archaeologists still look for the water shaft and so forth that David used to get into Jerusalem. It, is, it, it, that's, it, it was their vulnerability. And David exploited that vulnerability to get in. That's why if you really wanted to be a city that was going to be basically unconquerable, short of setting siege for a couple of years, you needed a water source inside the city walls. But they don't have that. And so David's going to find it. So, he says, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those, quote, lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and the lame will not enter um, the palace. The, again, to go to Don's question, I don't know that we would see it as much of a palace for the Jebusites. Yes, dear? Online, Lynn was asking, is that um, the city of David, is that also known as Old Jerusalem? No, Old Jerusalem is a larger term. This is known as the city of David. <coughs> yep, Old Jerusalem is, is a much larger and encompasses um, the Jewish quarters and the Arab quarters and that. I just brought that to illustrate you had this little... Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, roughly, roughly, you know, it gives you the sense that it's still, you know, much longer than it is wide. How about that? Much longer than it is wide. You know, we really, again, oh, we're such precise people. I mean, we have maps for everything. I have maps on my phone that would allow me to find any beaten down old farmhouse anywhere in America practically, right? In the ancient world, we don't have those. Do people agree what the map of Jerusalem was in Jesus' day? No. Was there a causeway connecting the eastern gate over the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives in Jesus' day? Some say yes, some say no. We just, there's, you just have to learn to accept a lot of imprecision when you're dealing with the ancient world. Yes, sir. <laughs> I think you went through Megiddo, which is way to the northwest, right? So that, that, that's an entirely different thing. Archaeologists think that they may have found some of this water shaft, you know. I don't know. Years ago, we went when we were at Megiddo, and we went down, and Megiddo is that big, but it's way north, it's in northwestern Israel. 
right? This is just, what is this? It's just a way in. It's just like, it's just like in a Mission Impossible movie, you know? We're going to go down into the tunnel. You're going to climb down and you're going to have some guys with you and you're going to go through and you're going to pop up inside the city walls and the people are going to go be so shocked and well, how, what are you doing here that you'll be able to conquer the city? I mean, that's basically what's going on. So, verse 9. We're not told that the story of the battle and the fighting. It, it's, the, it's the exploitation of that vulnerability that matters. David then took up residence in the fortress, such as it was, keep your expectations modest, and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because Yahweh, God Almighty, Yahweh El Shaddai, was with him. So David is going to take this little Jerusalem. He's going to expand it, improve it. He's going to make it the center. Right? And the reason to make it the center is to anchor David's kingship in a way that Saul's never was geographically and you know what I'm saying right yeah yeah it, it makes sense so I mean, I mean that's what he's doing he's going to make this the capital city of this United Kingdom that's why the, not just the King's Palace ends up there but more importantly the temple that Solomon builds will be there because it becomes the center of Israelite political power and it will become the center of the Israelite religion. And it figures mightily in all of the poetry and songs and psalms and the rest, singing songs about Jerusalem and returning to Zion and all that's where it all comes from. This, this modest little Jebusite city. And David is going to gain allies and friends. Why? Well, because he's got these 12 tribes and they're growing in power and wealth and that attracts allies and friends. Hey, David, let me be your friend. Let me show you what I can do for you. Verse 11. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, that is a kingdom, basically sort of where Lebanon is today north of Haifa. Tyre and Sidon are both up there. It's the general area that um, Jezebel came from. Yeah, that's, that's famous. So Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent envoys to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons. That area was known for its beautiful trees. The trees of Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon. And Hiram is going to make a friend in David by providing David with building materials and skilled craftsmen to build a palace. And they did. End of verse 11. They built a palace for David. Then David knew that Yahweh had established him as king over Israel 
and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So, <coughs> David understands that there is this project that God is about that began with Abraham and is continuing through which God wants to redeem the world, to bless all the families of the earth. And God chose the family of Abraham as the ones to do this with all their troubles and all the weaknesses and all the other stuff that we've ever seen. That project rolls forward. And now we have David and we have the United Kingdom again and we have Jerusalem and David's got himself a palace. You can bet it was nicer than the Jebusite palace that was there because King Hiram of Tyre sent all this stuff and these, these skilled craftsmen and the rest of it. So verse 13, after he left Hebron, David took for himself what? More concubines and more wives in Jerusalem. It's what kings did. Kings had harems. Okay, that's all that a harem is. A harem was a community of women first wives and second wives, often the only life they knew was inside the walls of, where, of their residence. Many of them would be ways to build relationships and allies. These are not all romantic relationships that he's flitting from one to the next after every 60 days or something. Yeah. It is, it is a political way of building power. And that didn't, that continued. I mean, that, that's a story in Europe and the Middle Ages and after, right? So he's got more concubines and wives in Jerusalem and more sons and daughters were born to him. He's got this growing household you know, when kids, half of the children born don't make it past the age of five, if you want to have successors, you need to have lots of kids. You need to, and in this world, you need to have sons because everybody wants it to be a son. In some, some cultures, it could only be a son, but um, sons were, des were desired. Henry VIII, what did he want? A son. Who was he succeeded by? A daughter. Right? A daughter born to whom? Yeah, you got it. Somebody, yeah, yeah, Anne Boleyn. Yeah. Who, in her excitement, got her head chopped off. Exactly. She lost her head. Exactly. So, you know. You could say, well, gosh, what a lucky thing to be able to be in this harem. Well, I don't know. It depends on who the king is. So these are the names of the children born to him there. Oh, I'm just going to have fun with the first one. Shamu. That's really not it. It's Shamua, but I like Shamu. Shobab, Nathan, 
Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishima, Eliada, and Eliphalet. Notice Solomon is right there in the midst of it. That is the Solomon. The Nathan you see there is one of his sons, but it's not Nathan the prophet who you will meet later. That's a different person. Okay? Well. John. Yeah. So it says sons and daughters. How many of these names are Several, from what I can see. Yeah. Probably Eliada, Elishama. Um, but I don't know for a fact. You'd have to go through each one of them and see how confident we are about which is a feminine form of a name and which is a male form of a name. The place to spend time on that that's really fruitful is Romans 16. In Romans 16, Paul lists a number of names. And it's very helpful to go through those names and to understand who in that Romans 16 is a woman because Paul obviously has women deeply involved in his ministry, okay? And it was always, to me, one of the key markers to say to people who thought women ought not to serve as pastors that they are wrong and off base. Because look at Paul, look at, look at what he actually did. But here, I'm not sure. But I bet if you go to Wikipedia, somebody will take a stab at it. Okay. boys were the thing we got we got names of daughters before in a list okay um, but you're right you know if you're gonna get names they're usually boys but one of the funny things one of the things that make Jewish genealogies different is that it does include women Jesus's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 includes four women that's unusual, right? And in some way, each woman has a slightly wild story to go with her, okay? Whether it's Ruth or it is um, Tamar or even Mary, right? Who was mysteriously pregnant while not being married to Joseph yet. So, okay. Anything else? All right. Verse 17. When the Philistines, aha, heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. That means just he's, he's in a safe place, a place ready to picture, I don't know, picture what? Picture a castle, something, a stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. I have another map. Yay! Okay. So, so here is Jerusalem. Whoa, wait a minute. Wait, I don't have to stand in front of the screen, do I, Patty? No. So, <laughs> Patty's my coach. So, there's Jerusalem. And the valley of Rephaim is just right here. So what's happened? It, these are, remember, Ekron, Ashdod, Gath, Ashkelon. These are all Philistine cities. So they've merely come eastward to check it out. This is David, right? 
come east to check out this David and see what's going on. Did they know that he was the David of the David and Goliath? I think they did. Did they know that he was the David who um, came over to them for a while? Remember, lived in one of their cities with the king and all that stuff. I think they know. They know all of that. I think those stories would spread quickly, right? So now this David, who had been running from Saul, is now the king of Israel, right? So, verse 18, the Philistines came and they spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord. One thing, if you went back and started working your way back some, one of the things you would find is David isn't doing as much of that now. He's not doing as much of that. Coming to God and asking God, what should I do? What should I do? Tell me if... Not, but he does here, but it's, it, it's tapering off, and that's not a good thing. Yahweh answered him and said, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. All right, that's all David needs. So David went to Baal, Perazim, and there he defeated them. And he said, As waters break out, Yahweh has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perazim, which is, you know, God breaks out. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off, which is marking victory. Those are spoils. You know, there's a word of warning in that sentence because what they should do with all of those idols... They should just immediately build a fire and burn every darn one of them. Because it will be the keeping in of idols that will be key to the downfall of Israel. But for now, verse 22, once more the Israelites came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. Ah, they don't give up easily. Who did I say? Okay. Once, thank you, Don. Once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of Yahweh, and Yahweh answered. Now, don't go straight up. Circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, Move quickly, because that will mean Yahweh has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. Well, wow. Okay, so first of all, as readers of 2 Samuel, are we, is God with the Israelites? Yes. Unequivocally, God is with the Israelites. He, they are the ones whom God has chosen through all of their faults and everything else, to be the ones through whom God would rescue humanity. And that story will come to its completion in one of the family of Abraham, whose name is Jesus. For now, 
it illustrates for us and reminds us that though David is the earthly king, it is really God who is king because the king, capital K, is the military commander. And in the book of Joshua, it's clear that when, when, when they follow God's instructions, they win. When they don't, they lose. So here God has said to you, look, here's what I want you to do. It's like they met in the commander's tent and God is spelling all this out for, for David and he says, go around, sneak around behind him, come up in front of the poplar trees and I'm gonna, I guess, basically scare the hoosets out of the Philistines because they're gonna think there's this huge marching army coming upon them in the sounds in the poplar trees. This happens other times, similar stories. So, verse 25, David did as Yahweh commanded him. And he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. So David is successful. The Philistines are repulsed. <coughs> repulsed. Not once, but twice. Because Yahweh is with them. Yahweh is their commander. David is inquiring of God as he should. Maybe if we inquired of God, every time we thought about going to war, there'd be many fewer wars in this world. But David inquires of God as he should. God is with them. God is their commander. Um, God leads them in the fighting. That's the whole picture here, okay? Of, of Israel, David, God. Okay? So, thoughts, questions? How does God talk to David? How does God talk to David? Does David hear an audible voice with all of this, or as we've seen elsewhere, are the questions generally, generally, yes, no questions. Should I go? Should I fight? Should I leave? And they would do that. Sometimes we've seen David go and get the ephod with the two stones in it and use those. It would be like flipping a coin. Yeah, heads yes, tails no, confident that God makes the coin come out with the answer that God wants. Right? Same way that when um, Judas dies and in Acts 1, he is going to be replaced because they need to have 12 apostles. And how do they replace Judas? Do they have a long debate about, well, which is the most qualified of all of these men here? And let's submit this to a vote of the community. No, they draw short straws. And Matthias is chosen because it was be it's God who's either going to control the straws or the dice or whatever it is that they use. That's, that's the basic means. How more information is transmitted, like go stand in front of the poplar trees, I don't know. Maybe it's a series of questions David asks. I don't know. Well, okay, chapter 6. We ready? Big chapter. Shocking chapter. Brace yourselves. <laughs> How you like that? How do, how's about that for setting myself up for failure, huh? Okay. 
David again brought together all the able young men of Israel. That's about 30,000 of them. He and all his men went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from their what? The Ark of God. The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of God. Remember, after all those stories, remember it was lost to the Philistines and they kept trying to give it back because everybody was getting sick around it and all this other stuff. Well, it's been, it's been basically homeless. God's been basically the ark. Um, it, it needs permanency. So David takes a bunch of men and they're going to go to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name. Not sure quite what to do with the Hebrew there. The name. The name of Yahweh Almighty. Now Yahweh Almighty is Yahweh Shaddai in Hebrew. Okay, but as Don and I were talking about at the beginning of before class, you know, you're reaching back to Hebrew that comes from thousands of years ago, and we don't know exactly, in every case, what the writer has in mind. We're not sure about the meaning of every Hebrew word as it was used almost 3,000 years ago, okay? But this is a big moment. This is the ark. This is the ark, okay? You can picture, I should have brought a picture of the ark, but I didn't. Um, so you have the box. It's a bo I can describe it easily. It's a, it's a fancy box. On top of the box there is a cover. The cover has two facing cherubim, not angels, cherubim, with wings touching. The box has rings on each corner so that a pole can be put through it and the ark can be carried from one place to the next and nobody even has to touch the ark to move it from one place to the next. It's all done with these wooden poles that go through the rings. That's it. So, they go there to get the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of Yahweh Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Now that's a key thing to remember about this. You have the box, you have the cover, on top of the cover are the two cherubim with wings toward each other. That cover, called the mercy seat usually, is like, here's it's the best way to understand it. It's like the portal connecting this world and God's world. This dimension and God's dimension. It would be where Moses goes to talk to God, to confer with God. Okay? And that's why it says, God who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Okay, so you, you know right away you have to bring a, 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 a different understanding of the fullness of God's reality. There, there are things in this world which you can obviously see, touch, lend themselves to all kinds of this and that, you know, with 
microscopes and rest of it. But there is another world. Beyond the veil, as the ancients used to talk about it. And it's just as real. And there is this connection between God's dimension and our dimension. And that is over right, right, right there on top of the cover between the two facing cherubim. Okay? Thoughts, questions? Could I explain it, could I explain it better? Yeah. For some time, right? I mean, really? Yes, it's just been hanging out. Yes, it's not good. So not really. Yes, assuming he does, because there were other people who had the ark, and they all ended up dying diseases and plagues. So, so was the tabernacle gone then? The tabernacle. Okay. I think it's hard to say. We pictured the tabernacle existing all this time, and then it's around, and then finally you build the you build Solomon's temple, and it's all nice and neat and that. You know, once once it leaves, once thing once the ark leaves Shiloh, once they take the ark from Shiloh to carry it into battle against the Philistines, I think it becomes very tenuous to be sure about exactly where the tabernacle is and exactly what structure Jesus puts all this Jesus what structure David puts all this in when he gets all this to, to Jerusalem finally so pretty much we just have to go by the text as best we can and sat and be satisfied with some uncertainty perhaps maybe maybe the key parts of the tabernacle are rolled up like a circus tent on carts outside this dude's house where the ark is being kept. I don't know. Let's find out. So, here's what they did when they get to this house. They set the ark of God on a new cart. Why a new cart? Why don't they just grab any cart they have? Okay, good practical reason. What's an impractical reason? A reason has nothing to do with being practical. This is the whole, this is God's ark this god is enthroned between the cherubim on the cover of this box so there are practical reasons but it's also this when the tabernacle was functioning completely properly where would you find the ark of the covenant in the holiest of holies right Back behind is this curtained off little room inside the temple, inside the tabernacle proper. And the high priest would go back there and there he would find it. And he would pray to God there. Say God's name one day a year. Yom Kippur. It's where Moses would go to meet God. It's where he met God and then Moses came out and he's just, his face is shining with God's glory. So now they have the ark, the box, which is actually all the word ark means, the box. So, they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio 
sons of Amenadab were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. So picture all this in your mind's eye. So they have the ark on a cart. Ahio, one of Abinadab's sons, is walking in front of the cart. David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before Yahweh with castanets, or whatever the Hebrew means. I doubt it means castanets, but anyway. Castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, um, sistrums, and cymbals. All these music, they're celebrating, they're making noise, they're making music. They are going to bring the ark to Jerusalem. They're going to make a home for it in Jerusalem. Israel's being put back together proper. David is now God's king on earth. And so they're celebrating, celebrating whatever they do, you know. Probably not rapping. Verse 6. I don't know why I say what I do. When they came... When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, that's just a geographical reference, okay? On the road, there's this guy named Nacon who lives there, and they come to a threshing floor where he, you know, grinds his wheat. Uzzah, Uzzah, it's actually Uzzah, I looked it up. Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God. He reached out with his bare hand and grabbed the ark of God. Because the oxen stumbled. And he says to himself, well, the oxen are having a bit of trouble. I'm going to hold the, uh, the ark on there. Yahweh's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Now you could say to me, but he was just trying to do the right thing, and he might have been doing the right thing. But in that moment, he forgot that God is holy, 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 and he is not. There is a barrier between God and humanity, God and Uzzah, that cannot, these people can't cross. In that way, God is dangerous. Um, I remember reading a book a long, long time ago by a theologian and Old Testament scholar named Donald Gowan. And it's on Exodus, and he writes about this, this dangerous, this dangerous God. And the most striking place for me in the Old Testament where this is seen is when Moses comes down from the mountaintop with the tablets and everybody's partying down there, you know. Edward G. Robinson is leading them all, you know, in revelry and fun and all that kind of stuff, right? And, and, and God ends up saying to Moses, okay, I can't go on. I'm not going on with these people. I'll send an angel. I'll send an angel to go with you and them because I can't do this. If I do this, they are going to do terrible things and my anger, my wrath will break out upon them. 
Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that God is like Zeus, sitting on top of Mount Olympus, waiting to throw lightning at people to smite them for this and that? No, it isn't what it means. What it means is that God is holy, holy, holy. Think of the hymn, holy, holy, holy. And the people are not. And they can forget that. And it's to their own. You risk destruction when you make God in that way too familiar. And you, can, you, you imagine that you can cross that barrier because God is like the sun in God's pure holiness. And we're safe from the sun here at 93 million miles away. Is that right? It's going back to my fifth grade. Nine, right? But if you fly too close to the sun, what's going to happen? You're going to burn up. You're going to burn up. Has the sun smited you? Has the sun reached out to you and said, oh, you did something? No. It's because you flew, you went too close to this, to the power of the sun. That's the best way to understand this business of a dangerous God. There are moments across the Old Testament that just remind you of how old this stuff is and how raw it can be. And here Uzzah might have been well-intentioned, but nonetheless, he should not have touched the ark. He should have grabbed the poles, but not touched the ark. Noah's, that's a different, Noah's Ark, okay, what? No, no. I mean, no, that's what I stop for a second. Noah's Ark is the big, like, boat, right? That's long before. All the word Ark means is box. So, no. No, I meant the Ark we're talking about. Okay, no, just, just say no, nobody touched it. They built it. They put it there. Uh, Moses would go in, and he would he would um, meet God, where God is enthroned on the mercy seat on the top cover. Um, if you ask me, did anybody in the was there a way for the priests? There must have been some way for them to maintain them. But this is a casual, <coughs> irreverent act by an unthinking man. And the point. What's the point of it? What does, this, what does this say to the people of Israel? You're going to bring the ark back. Don't take it casually. Don't take it lightly. Don't take it irreverently. Don't take the ark out into battle again. Remember that story? How did that work out for you? If you go back to 1 Samuel 6, we'd find that the ark is residing with the people of Beth Shemesh and like 70 of them die. The ark is the power of this God who in God's holy power can be dangerous to a people who are filled with sin. You see? And it's it's not, it, it's not a perspective that sits easily 
you know, with modern day Christianity. But you're not reading modern day Christianity, are we? This, these are Hebrew scriptures from thousands of years ago, conveying something important to us, I think, about not making God too familiar. And I always think of the clip from, I don't know what movie it was, of, who was the comedian who had the seven dirty words? That you know. <laughs> All these other things I throw out, y'all are mute. But I throw out who has the seven dirty words, and you know that. <laughs> so George Carlin has this bit in the movie where he talks about Buddy Christ. Right? There's a little statue of Buddy Christ kind of reaching out, this kind of hippie 70s dude, and he's got this long arm, but he's pointing. He says, I love you, man. I love you, man. No. You can't get that far. Yes, Jesus is your friend, but he's not Buddy Christ. He is still God, and we are not. We are not. There is not, not an ounce of divinity in our creation. God dwells in us, yes, but we aren't divine or semi-divine or anything else, a quarter divine a bit divine. Nope. So, poor Uzzah. And I do feel badly for Uzzah. You know, I would like to think that after death, you know, God takes care of Uzzah. But he touched the ark. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. I'm looking at the NIV. Anybody have a different translation that has a different word than irreverent? Okay. This is the translators of the NIV use the word irreverent. It, it, it works. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of, the, uh, beside the ark of God. Yeah? In the CEB? What? In the CEB it says because of his mistake. Because of his mistake. See, that's not as helpful. I, I don't think in the CEB. I mean, again, I don't know what the Hebrew here it is. I'd have to spend some time kind of reading and studying about it. But it, it is the irreverence. It is, it, is, it, is, it is becoming too familiar with God. And he made a mistake. But heck, we all make mistakes. And sometimes we can't fix them. Yes. It is. Well, we don't really know. It, does, it, it doesn't say. It, notice it doesn't say the ark was about to fall off the cart, does it? It just says the oxen stumbled. Was he too quick? Could he have grabbed? I, I don't know. But the, what he did was he committed an irreverent act touching the ark. That's all, that's all the story is. It's one of those moments that He, he, he what? It says the oxen shook it. The oxen shook it rather than the oxen stumbling. And which translation are you in? James. King James? Yeah. Well, I'd go with the NIV. I, King James is, is, doesn't have, I mean, it's, the King James, they were using their knowledge of Hebrew 400 years ago to make the translation, so... But it's all, yes. My notes say that it was a capital offense under Hebrew law to touch the ark. 
Okay, that makes sense to me. Yeah, okay, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, okay, I'll buy that, sure. I don't know what the reference is to the book of Numbers, but yeah. Yeah, so if you just stop and think about what the ark actually is, is it really just a box? No. You know, this is where I poke fun at Raiders of the Lost Ark all the time. And you should not come to the Raiders of the Lost Ark and find your theological answers <laughs> to questions. But the fact that in that movie, the ark is shown as having great power is, is part of this Old Testament. So much so that what? The Israelites took it into battle against the Philistines. The Philistines capture it. And remember it sat next to the Philistine uh, idol Dagon, the god Dagon, and came in the next day and the thing had fallen on its face. And the, they end up wanting to give it back because the power of God is uncontrolled. We don't control the power of God. We would like to think we control everything. We would like to think that we can figure out everything that God needs to do to be a right, loving, fair, and just God. But we can't. Our minds and hearts are clouded by sin. That's why we get so many things wrong. Okay, so. Well, verse 8. Then David was angry because Yahweh's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means outbreak against Uzzah. So if at least the guy's immortalized. Not in a good way, but any event, okay? Now David was afraid of Yahweh that day. Hmm. That's, in some ways, that's not a bad thing because if you were going to pick somebody who would become too familiar, too, too casual with God, is there a better candidate than David? I, I, think it, I think it could happen. He could take God quite for granted. You'll have to see going forward how often he goes to God and inquires of God and going forward. It seems that he begins to take it very seriously. Now let's talk about this afraid business because this came up with someone when I was leaving class on Sunday. The phrase, the fear of the Lord. It appears in your Old Testament approximately 200 times, 180 times. It's a very common in the Old Testament. Um, the most famous, because of the sermon series we're doing right now on Proverbs and wisdom, is actually from Psalm 110 and a very close relation in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And people, we, we read that. We go to, what do you mean the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Am I supposed to be afraid of God? Am I supposed to be terrorized by God? No, that's not what it means. In Hebrew, the fear of the Lord is a two, it's two words, which function with one meaning. A, like the two-word phrase, mass transit. Two words means one thing, right? Fear of the Lord, two Hebrew words means one thing. Fear of the Lord. What is it talking about? Is it talking about being terrorized by God? It's talking about 
respecting and knowing that God is God and we are not. Holding God as one beyond our understanding. Unless God, we can only come to know God to the extent God allows us and we can we have the means intellectually to, to do that. So fear of the Lord is not about running away afraid from God. It means knowing that God is God and we are not. And you know, um, one of the commentators I read a long time ago said, look, it's like, it's like going to Niagara Falls and you get on the Maid of the Mist and you're down at there at the bottom of the falls and you're just stunned. Nobody down, nobody on the Maid of the Mist, down at the bottom of Niagara Falls is Chatty, Chatty Johnny or Chatty Kathy. See, I'm trying not to be sexist. Chatty, <laughs> Chatty Ken or Chatty Barbie. Nope, nope. You're just, you're just overwhelmed by the awesomeness of the falls and the water and the power. Well, acceptance of the awesomeness of God. That's the key thing. The key thing is, okay, th if you want to think in terms of size, God is, yay big, we're here. You're on a mountaintop in the Rockies, and you look out around the world and you go, oh my gosh, there's not much to me, huh? Understanding that compared to the God who created everything there is, the transcendence of God. That's what the fear of the Lord is. That's all the Hebrews meant by it. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, understanding who God is and who we are not is the beginning of, of wisdom about this world and about who we are and how we need to make our way in this world. We are not, God is not a better version of us. That's a really good phrase to learn because that's the way a lot of people come to this. They think that God is a better version of us and that everything we might say about ourselves if we just expanded it and grew it outward well that's God that is not true God is not merely a better version of us God is God and we are creatures made by God you know it, it is almost makes it difficult to read the Bible because you almost study uh, uh, the history but the language of Israel if you don't understand the language if I had read this without your interpretation I would see it totally different you know so when we come to the Bible you can get can you get the good news of the Bible just by reading the Gospels yes you can but obviously God wants us to get a lot more and History, language, all of that's important to really begin to mind the depth of what God has given us in Scripture. Because it's like God says, oh, you want to know me. You want to know yourself. You want to understand why the world is the way it is. Well, here, read this. And it's all coming from the ancient world. Ancient world! Not not just the pre-modern world or the medieval world 
or the Dark Ages. It's coming from the ancient world, and it's in ancient Hebrew, and it's in ancient Greek. So, wow. I know. Yeah. And so, wow, are we blessed. I feel blessed to be serving at this church because this church is filled with thoughtful, educated people who can go a lot further in Bible study than they ever thought that they could. I didn't go to seminary, right? There, there's so many resources that can, that, that can help you. Just spending time with, okay, what does the word grace mean? What does the word grace, charis, mean in the Greek? How is it used in the Greek? All of that is opening up, it's like opening up a flower, opening up a flower. And it takes you deeper and deeper into what Paul, for example, means when he uses the word grace, because he could use a different word. Okay, so, yes. What time? Oh my gosh, I went over today, didn't I? I'm so enthusiastic here. What do you mean? Okay, who's good for another hour? Okay, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we, yeah, we got it. Okay, I got excited and enthusiastic and went over a bit today, but this is important. This is important. Um, most of the world doesn't see it that way. Most of the world does want superficiality, even when it comes to your scriptures. Just a little, just a little book of comforting promises. That'll do for me, thank you very much. But we know that you have given us this library, and you've given us this library for a reason. So instill in all of us the energy and the desire and the enthusiasm to learn so that we see all of the opening flowers. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.